Hello and welcome to In Unison. I'm Zane Fiala. And I'm Giacomo G. Gregoli. And this is our podcast all about new choral music and the composers, conductors, choristers, and administrators who bring it to life. Let's start the show! Hey everyone, today on In Unison, we're heading across the pond to chat with Robert Hollingworth, the director of E. Fagiolini, a solo voice ensemble based in the UK. Robert also co-hosts a very choir-nerdy podcast called Choral Chihuahua, and his passion for bringing choral music to the masses definitely helped to inspire this podcast. So let's get acquainted with E. Fagiolini's sound. Here is a fine example of a 16th century English madrigal, Draw On Sweet Night by John Wilby, who is known for being perhaps the most famous of English madrigalists. Wilby was also a poet, and his sensitivity to setting text is expertly matched by E. Fagiolini's sensitive interpretation of the melancholic music, as the text painting describes a poet telling his sadness to his best friend, the dark night sky. Thank you. 
Okay, joining us today from across the pond is Robert Hollingworth, and for the most part, we'll be discussing his ensemble, E. Fagiolini, which he founded while at university in 1986. But Robert's resume is very impressive. As a boy, Robert was a chorister at Hereford Cathedral, set up his first solo voice ensemble at the age of 16, read music at New College Oxford, followed by a year at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. In place of a conventional academic career, he has spent 35 years directing various vocal groups, notably E. Fagiolini, but others include Voces 8, the BBC Singers, and the National Youth Choir of Great Britain. Robert has also directed professional choirs and period instrument orchestras across continental Europe. We're going to talk a lot about E. Fagiolini today, but here's a little primer for our listeners. The group has a unique reputation for innovative and creative productions, and has released nearly 30 CDs and DVDs that have included first recordings of works and collections by Bird, Croce, Tompkins, Andrea Gabrielli, and more. The group is in association at the University of York Music Department, where, as well as teaching undergraduate projects, Robert runs an MA in solo voice ensemble singing, taking just one consort of singers per year, the only UK program of its type. Robert is also the newly appointed director of Stour Music, an early music festival near London set up by legendary countertenor Alfred Deller. And during the COVID lockdown, he created and presented a new YouTube series for choral music enthusiasts, like me and Giacomo, called Sing the Score, which we highly recommend to our listeners, and we will talk about more during this interview. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. We are super excited to chat with you. It's my pleasure to be here. Even this late evening here now. <laughs> I'll throw in I'll throw in one more pitch too, since we didn't mention this, but Robert is also the host of Coral Chihuahua, which is the inspiration for this podcast. So we're thrilled about that and thrilled to see it come back. Robert, let's get to know you a little bit uh, personally with an icebreaker. Setting aside personal religious beliefs for a moment, let's imagine there's a perfect heaven and a miserable hell. What music is playing on the speakers in each? Hmm. Hmm. Okay, um, heaven. I think it probably has to be Bach, um, uh, because it, there's just such variety. There are great moments in the end of the B minor Mass or the Sanctus that would just utterly inspire you. I mean, Bach didn't have an easy life, but if you could write music like that, there has to be hope. Um, or even the stuff that I don't know so well, the endless preludes and fugues. If I could ever stop someone programming them back to back, the whole of the forty-eight. Gosh, what a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, maybe that's the place for hell. No, I think hell would be uh, endlessly um, unimaginative music. There's quite a lot of Baroque instrumental music like that that is really functional. It's not really meant to be sat down and listened to. Um, so anything anything that doesn't have much thought to it and just goes round and round, I just want to scream, Ugh. shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You're a rock music aficionado, I take it then. Uh, well, no, I, I know so little about it, so I couldn't possibly judge about the music. But I suppose any music that we all that we know, we can hear all the subtleties and the compositional things going on. And when we don't know, we come to a new music, which for me is a lot of rock music. We just hear the noise it makes. It'd be the same for anyone listening to Renaissance music hadn't heard it before. They just hear sort of la 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 choral sound. Um, uh, and and yeah, well, we don't want to get too far into my sort of personal prejudices, of course. But they... <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about E. Fagiolini and its history. Maybe you can give us an idea of the background of the group, how it was founded, and God, where did that fabulous name come from? The name, when I was at uh, New College Oxford, so this is the mid-1980s, and early music, historically informed performance at New College was referred to by the students as Beanie Music. Uh, and this was because most of the period instrument orchestras that used to come up and play with us, Academy of Ancient Music, English Concert, that's, that kind of groups, all seemed to be, to our childish minds, um, made up of vegetarians knitting their own yoghurt, that kind of thing. And um, uh, the whole thing was just referred to as beanie music. So when I, in my second year, set up a group doing Monteverdi and Schutz and things like that, Jeannequin, um, a couple of the, the students called me Beanie Bob. Um, I've never been Bob, but Beanie Bob it was, and we should just call ourselves, said one of them, The Beans. 
Um, and someone else, well, yeah, but let's make it put in Italian because that sounds kind of more sophisticated, which is a big mistake because if you go to Italy, as we later did, you discover that it has certain slang connotations, uh, oh. which, are not, which you don't really want on a poster. Um, and the very first time we went, it was actually to the um, Villa Itati, which is the Harvard Center for Italian Renaissance Studies. And the um, and the uh, the guy organising the concert wanted to put on the um, actually it wasn't there was um, Catherine Bosey who asked us but when she told the the boss he said oh, God, can you after their name on the invitations can you just write Scusi because he was so embarrassed <laughs> Scusi <laughs> so so beanie beanie music um, something I would say right at the start is you know there'll be all sorts of people listening to this and people at, at different stages especially after the last two years that we've all gone through of wondering how they're ever going to make music again. And, um, you know, people like me come on a programme like this and, darlings, we've all done so well. Um, but actually, it's been really hard the whole way through. Nothing was easy. Um, and we made mistakes along the way. Uh, and I think the reason we're still here 35 years later is sheer bloody-mindedness. Um, but, you know, take heart listening out there. It's not easy uh, in the arts. There are no easy solutions um, and you just have to keep at it if you like it. Well, I must say, I mean, anyone who's listening or just listened to the, the, the first few moments of this interview can realize that obviously, Robert, you're a bit of a card. You've got a great sense of humor. You're incredibly playful. I mean, anyone who's ever gone to a Fagellini concert would know this and, and uh, would, would sort of feel that playfulness and fun. And you infuse playfulness into nearly every aspect of your work, from the naming of your programs to calling the Ficta police in your episodes of Sing the Score, which we'll talk about in a moment. Playfulness is such a great part of, of how folks will work and sort of uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a, a wonderful thing to include in our work. Is that intentional or is it a product of your personality? Like what are the benefits of infusing playfulness into the works in ways you do? Um, it's definitely a part of my personality. I, I think, you know, like all of us, I'm the product of my two parents. My mother, and I really sing the score, is, is the product of my two parents. My mother um, was a, very much a music educator. She, want, she wanted people to understand. She didn't want to tell them things. She wanted them to understand. Um, and my father, uh, who was a, an accountant, uh, was basically a comedian, I think, uh, still is. And um, we both appeared on uh, in his village about five years ago singing Flanders and Swan duets. And he sang me off the stage, aged 86 or so. <laughs> Um, because his desire to uh, entertain and get a laugh is, is central to everything. But I think that the laughter thing has been under, uh, misunderstood. I mean, it's, whether I lecture or giving a workshop or just chatting or giving concerts, it would seem a strange thing to, to cut out of what you do, but depending entirely on the repertoire, of course. But I don't feel that I s squeeze it into things. I think there's a natural place for it. And, uh, you know, I, I gave a a lecture today for an hour to some of my graduate students and especially over zoom we know this don't we that uh, uh, it's you have to keep people's attention because if you drone on and on and on and on even if you have really interesting things after five minutes they're going to start thinking i wonder if i've had any messages on my phone or or they're just going to start thinking about other things and it's the same in concerts so lecturing is is a performance i think we we know that as educators and it's it's exhausting um but I don't see why you should keep humour out of things if it's suitable. I mean, we did a we did a, a, um, a show called Leonardo Shaping the Invisible on his big anniversary three years back. And um, one of the things I was interested in was his portraits, his grotesque portraits, which he had a real fad of doing. Uh, extraordinary things if you put them alongside the Mona Lisa and St John the Baptist and things like that. You know, what on earth could this be the same artist? And we sang, to sort of match that, we sang a, a magical comedy episode from a, a piece called L'Amphiparnasso, which features the old man Pantalone. And the only way you can characterise that character in that particular magical is by making it very, very strong vocal character. And we went nasal for that old, old man so that the other characters in it weren't like that because there's no, there's no, um, you know, there's no one voice sings that part and all the voices sing all the characters. And so it's kind of a song sort of thing. And then the audience laughed a lot. And, and as it finished this in, in London somewhere, I said, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a little film of this on our website somewhere. Um, and, Someone has someone's commented underneath the great democratization of art, commented underneath, um, what a terrible waste of talent. <laughs> and I thought, I think you completely missed the point here. Art isn't always it isn't always pretty. It doesn't have to be about that. 
um, uh, it's realistic. I think that people still come back to, to Fagellini, the few, the few that do, I suppose, is the humanity of it. We don't try to hide the fact that there are, there are literally warts and all. Is this part of also how you work with your ensembles as well? So you're, when you're performing and when you're lecturing, it's certainly about keeping attention. But is play also part of your rehearsal process and your production process? I just think it's a, it's a part of whom I am. But I think, I think if you came to anything I did, you'd realize, and I realize I, did, I haven't shouted about this early enough because I think we've been dismissed sometimes by people think you're doing comedy work that actually you're not. So I'm answering a different question now, you'll notice, as my political training. Um, uh, so comedy uh, in music is very hard because you had to know the music twice as well. It's always, comedy projects have always taken a lot more time, but actually we haven't done that many comedy projects, a few magical comedies. Um, uh, Lamfi Parnasso, our first DVD back in 2003, uh, so it was one CD of Venetian comic pieces, and we're about to film another piece now called Goost. But um, actually, I think if anyone came to a Fagellini rehearsal or me working with another choir, although we have a few laughs along the way, they just note the, the hard musical work that goes on. It's, it's all about musical process, understanding one line against another, uh, really working with the foreign languages, which is something that we lap up and absolutely adore. It's hard, honest musical work. Now, what inspired you to start E. Fagellini back um, in 1986? Was there a void for a group like that, or was it just a strong passion? It was It was very much a strong passion. The initial thing for me was the King Singers, like so many others. I remember Dawn Upshaw, apparently, also King Singers. Um, she is apparently influenced by them. Um, they seem to be having such a good time. That's definitely one part of it. Uh, their pleasure in performance back in the 70s now um, was enormous. Uh, and, you know, back in the 70s, we only had three channels and they were on it most of the time. They, were, they had enormous exposure in the way that most of us can only dream about now. Um, but also the repertoire. Um, do we remember the Magical History Tour from the early 1980s? That was primetime BBC television. You know, you wouldn't get close to that these days. And through it, I was introduced to music I didn't know from all, all over Europe um, and discovered that it was enormous fun to perform. Um, and I had this this school group called the Strongbow Quartet, which for three or four years, which is my first one to a part ensemble. And we learned really tricky pieces like Janequin's La Bataille or La Guerre. Um, and it, it felt really quite virtuosic. And there was a sheer, you know, visceral joy in doing difficult music well and making it sound easy. You know, you look at a, a ballet dancer, they make it look easy. And I think there was something about the King Singers um, and the way we tried to do stuff. You know, I was only 17, but I, I really wanted to do that. So Ifagellini was really only a, con um, a continuation of what I'd done, but now with Sopranos, it was an 80 bar B group in those mm. days. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about that, actually, since there is such an incredible breadth of um, uh, uh, styles and types of music and, and, and certainly a, a large span of, of things that you can select from. How do you typically think about structuring your artistic seasons when you think about repertoire, when you think about a moment that you want to create for folks? What do you think about? What goes through your mind? No one would want to go in my mind in the artistic <laughs> mess that's in there. And, and, and the other thing I suppose I want to say is that, you know, I, I admire American choirs that are, you know, organize their funding and have boards and plan whole seasons. And, and you know, some of my colleagues do as well. You know, the, the 16 we're just talking about, they do their choral pilgrimage every year and it has to be planned before because they do CDs that release with it. But despite the best efforts of my manager, Libby Percival, um, I am not as organized as I should be. I've never had a five-year plan. I certainly never had a 10-year plan. Um, I, I find that I've just read John Cleese's book about creativity. And, and he says, to be really creative, you need an absence of distractions. And I find that difficult, um, certainly teaching at the moment with the style music and the teaching and the, and the Fagellini and the, the freelance conducting work, quiet moments, uh, few and far between. And um, I need more time with creative types. I find once I get it with a, in a room with a creative type and some coffee, um, then uh, ideas can come quite fast. But I'm, I'm quite mono-artistic. I don't have a great knowledge of, of poetry and, and literature. Uh, or art. There are things I like. Um, I've just been asked to do a lovely project of Archimboldo, you know, the art, uh, 16th century artist that uses vegetables, unfortunately by a museum in Moscow. Mm. It's a shame, wasn't it? Bad timing. Mm. Um, uh, and, and so 
I, I'm not good at forward planning in a big way, but yeah, a year and a half, a year, I try to come up with an idea. And it's nearly always about how can we throw new light on something? I almost never do just regular repertoire. So when we did our Monteverdi, the other Vespers disc back in 2017, it was partly to draw a light on this later collection of his, which had absolutely been recorded before, um, but also to do all the other pieces with it, music by Ignazio Donati, and, and a beautiful piece for four voices and cornet ornaments that, um, that hadn't had the, the light of day before. So new sound worlds, new ways of looking at things and trying to get the audience to think for themselves. I do think that concert promoters, by which I also mean artists, um, as I've always in, already intimated with that comment about the Bach 48, can be lazy when it comes to concert programming. And I think you have to imagine yourself the other side of the divide listening to this. Um, you know, me, two or three Bach fugues, then I'd want to take a break, I'd want to go for a walk, I'd want to have a drink, I'd want to have a think, and then listen to, I don't know, a Handlaria or something. Um, overload, I think, is bad. I don't like cataloguing programmes. So, uh, yeah, that's those are my starting points, I suppose. And you mentioned the notion of... of um part of creativity is as collaboration. Is that something you do typically with Ifagellini? Are there artists that you've brought in? What What is that process like for you? Do you do you find yourself collaborating with different artists and different folks? Yes, uh, uh, some of it is my idea, but a lot of it isn't. One of the most successful projects we ever had was with an Australian contemporary circus company called Circa from Brisbane, phenomenal group. Um, and the promoter at uh, Norfolk and Norwich Festival, who was about to move to the Perth International Festival in Australia, said, uh, my dream project would be Ifagellini and Circa. I just need to put them in a room because I haven't got a clue what the, the project was. Um, and you're also sitting there thinking, yeah, I imagine you have sort of, you know, sort of thinking time and uh, you know, several weeks of rehearsal to put something like, because a, 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 um, a devised show like this is, is generally quite a long thing, you know, uh, six weeks maybe. We had a day and a half. Well, okay, wow. and, and did the show the next day, uh, which is absolute insanity, of course. Um, and then we had more time to think about it afterwards, after we'd first done it in Perth. But that was beautiful. It was quite Jackson Pollock in that it was things kind of thrown at other things and see if they'd work. It was, it was quite alchemical and it did work, but we needed to refine it afterwards. But um, the project we're best known for, in a way, our Monteverdi project from 2004 to seven that we brought to New York, um, uh, the full Monteverdi, that was John Labouchardier, theatre director, uh, opera director, who just came to me with this idea and said, I want to do Monteverdi book four. And I see it as six different couples having the same conversation, but not knowing each other in a restaurant. Um, and, you know, people can look that up if they want to. But that was very, very much John's idea. And my job was the MD, the music director only. Um, Talis in Wonderland was a little bit different. That was about me trying to get people to understand what it was like to be in polyphony, as opposed to listening to a wadge of sound coming from the end of uh, the other room. But we did a project with the Opera Group in 2005, a new opera um, based on Aristophanes' The Birds. That was with Joel, John Fulljames, who's now at uh, Danish Opera. Um, he's a great listener. Um, so I think it's you have to be generous and you have to respect other people's ideas. Um, I suppose in, 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 you'd have more time to rehearse and try things out, and that's rarely the case. Um, but I know I, my own weakness is I don't know enough people and I don't know people from the world of, well, we've just done a program called Rewilding the Wasteland. And fortunately, one of my trustees, Claire Pelly, was able to give me advice on, on poetry that we could put alongside the wasteland, but I wouldn't have known. Um, and it wasn't actually until the day of the first performance with the British actress um, Tamsin Gregg that I understood the poem. Quite annoyed me until we started, but the way she she laid it out on in her performance on Live from London uh, last year was so moving and so clear. You could frankly see the entire poem in her eyes, um, and that was a that was a um, cathartic moment for me. Since Robert was just talking about Monteverdi, although he does that a lot, let's hear something from E. Fagellini's album titled Monteverdi, The Other Vespers. The album's title, The Other Vespers, represents the period of Monteverdi's writing that marked his reorientation from court musician to church musician. Listen for the interplay of melodies handed off between voices, particularly the vocal gymnastics performed by the singers on the Exaltabit text. 
with quick moving trills and vocal runs that imitate the sound and lines of brass and stringed instruments. Here is an excerpt of Dixit Dominus, performed by E. Fagiolini and the English Cornet and Sackbutt Ensemble. have made a lot of films too with E. Fagiolini. These short videos, these short movies as it were. In fact, um, one of our, Giacomo and my first uh, uh, <coughs> things that brought us uh, to E. Fagiolini's doorstep was Jean-Aquin's The Stag Hunt film that you released early in COVID, um, which is a fantastic video film that I will put a link to it in our show notes, um, or at least into information how people can, can get their hands on it. But it's a fantastic little film. What inspired the first films? What what? Because it's not very common for a chorus to make movies. Um, and so I wondered what inspired that? What what? drove that decision? I think we, we first did it in 2002 and we were absolutely right for it because we had started st in the late 90s we started staging pieces and it started with Baroque pieces uh, Handel's Aces and Galatea and, and Purser's Indian Queen but even before then I think the reason we got recommended for those was because we'd started trying to stage uh, Renaissance pieces so Ensaladas by Matteo da Fletcher, these Christmas pieces in which all sorts of outlandish things happen. And then in the middle, a, a song is sung to the Christ child um, who just magically appears at that particular moment in the piece. And I just thought these are absolutely ripe for staging. And we tried to do them ourselves, sort of rushing around passionately on stage, but we needed a stage director. And we worked with Peter Wilson and he did some short pieces and he did some longer pieces. The, the first big piece, I suppose, was Lamphi Parnasso. That's a, a magical comedy, the one I mentioned, where the different characters are all sung by the same singer. So you have to embody that sound. You have to characterize each sound. 
Um, but we staged it as well. So we learned a lot about Commedia dell'arte and we wore masks, which I absolutely, I'm, I'm a terrible, terrible actor. I have to tell you, I'm a terrible actor, but give me a half, a half mask, semi-mask, and I can do anything. And it was a, a tremendously liberating things for me, although I had to sort of learn a little bit about the, um, um, uh, about the sort of caricature nature of it. <laughs> the first rehearsal, uh, we will talk. Okay, Robert, I'd like you to do a little bit of anger here. So if you could just sort of invent some sort of anger with Matthew, and instead of just going for some sort of some silly caricature of anger, I, I found something deeply black in my soul and came out <laughs> with this tirade against Matthew. And there was sort of silence afterwards, and the stage director said, "Okay, Leroy, let's just take five, shall we?" <laughs> <laughs> so don't ask me to do real acting. Well, fortunately, no one has. But um, comedy, I absolutely loved. Um, and that led into um, making a, a film of that um, and the full Monteverdi and, and Talis and Wonder and other things. But I think the other thing is, is you realise that some of these Renaissance pieces, they're great fun and they can be full like the Stag Hunt, for example, of, of, um, of sound effects. You know, you've got in the Stag Hunt, you get the, the, the horse's hooves written into the score. Pif, pif, plof, it says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you notice Nyof. the difference. Sound, and the different dogs sound. barking. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. The dogs barking. Nyof, nyof. Um, but that will only go so far. And actually to show what's happening, you need something visual. And we were introduced to Greg Browning um, in 2002, working at the Cheltenham Festival, who's a, a sort of trained uh, cameraman, producer, editor, and I've worked with him forever since. And that's one thing I would just say actually about what's happened in the last couple of years. In the last couple of years, people who knows how to use a camera and who know how to um, uh, know how to use the software have been very much in demand. And thank goodness that they're there. That's not quite the same as understanding how people see through a camera lens and how to edit. I don't mean technically how to edit, but really the science and the psychology of editing. And uh, looking at what Greg does has been uh, great for that. And so all our stuff now it has a visual side to it. Yeah, there's a there, there's a reason there's a BAFTA and an Oscar for, for editing. It's it's truly a, a work of art in and of itself, yeah. how, sort of how you put that together. Yeah. Uh, knowing the level of quality and the level of innovation that Ifagiolini uh, presents, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the ensemble and the, the, the singers. How large is the ensemble? And then what do you look for when you bring in members? Yeah, um, the second one's an easy option, uh, easy question, versatility. Um, I learned recently that Matt Long, our tenor, can juggle. Uh, this is useful. I don't know don't know when I'll do it. I don't use that. Actually, that's a great story. Dan Norman, a great tenor, coming out of his audition for Les Arts Florissant in, I don't know, choose a year. And he's the first in, and the room is entirely full of tenors outside. Very nervous, of course, because Les Arts Florissant have a lot of work to offer. He goes in, sings first comes out, they're all looking at him expecting, he shuts the door and says, can you juggle? And walks off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, we have, I suppose we have a pool of about 10 or 11 singers. Um, uh, Our soprano Anna Crooks has sung with us since the very, very first concert. So she and I are are of an age now. But she was, um, you know, the the British television competition, the uh, BBC Young Musician of the Year. She was the third ever winner of that as a pianist, as a pianist, though, in 1982. So that gives you an idea of the sort of mixed skill set we have. Um, uh, and then uh, we have uh, working with Rebecca Lee at the moment, who also works for the BBC Singers, but she's she's much, much younger. I remember Rebecca as a student coming along to our Talis in Wonderland residency in Snape Maltings in Alborough back in 2009 or so. So it's funny that I then didn't see her for some eight years and then suddenly there she was the real thing. Um, Peter Gritton, a counter tenor. Uh, I've hardly worked with Peter for 20 years. Um, he's been He's gone through a career as a composer, but a director of music at a school in London, a couple of schools. Um, and and we had to, we, we, we were short of someone, someone was ill and he came in just to help us out and um, managing to fit that in around his school um, work. And it just hit me between the eyes what an extraordinary musician he is. He was doing the BBC thing yesterday, and somehow I'd failed to tell him or he'd failed to understand that there was a new commission um, that we all knew and he didn't. So would he please look at it? He turned up at three o'clock, having never seen it before, broadcast it perfectly at 5.30. That's the level of musician you're talking about. And it's a big piece, seven-minute piece as well. Um, uh, 
we used different tenors. Matthew Long, who was also our lead in Monteverdi's Orfeo, Nicholas Mulroy, Nicholas Herndl Smith, um, uh, people who will sing Creation on one day of the week. Nicholas Mulroy, famous for his Bach performances with the Dunedin concert and uh, all over the world. Um, uh, Greg Skidmore runs the Canadian uh, Renaissance Music Summer School, uh, just getting going this year in um, uh, May that I'm looking forward to coming and coaching on. Um, but one of the bases of the Talis Scholars, he'll be out in the States in, in August, uh, uh, in April, touring with them. Charles Gibbs has been our base for about 15 years, also a BBC singer. So there's two of them in the BBC Singers and they get through more repertoire than you can possibly imagine and also do more contemporary repertoire than most groups. Um, you know, they do more in a year than most groups do in a lifetime. So, you know, highly versatile musicians. Versatility, uh, languages, a flexible sound. And that's, I think, because they might find themselves singing Britain, uh, Hildegard of Bingen and Monteverdi in the same concert. Let's talk a little bit about... Um... I mean, these, this is an extraordinarily, uh, unassailably talented group of musicians, I think, that you have uh, in, in Ifajalina, just extraordinary musicians. How did they get to be that way? And I sort of want to talk a little bit about um, your program at the Unity, University of York, which is a, uh, a new innovative voice program for concert singing, which is one part ensemble singing. Um, your experience alone makes you an expert on this topic, but... Um, they obviously did not have the benefit of such a thing. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you're prepping the next generation of singers who will come along and what prompted this program for you and maybe how it's different from how folks who have, uh, who have sort of come through the system previously had prepared mm. themselves to become members of Ifajolini. Yeah, I mean, you're very kind, but of course, we're not unassailable at all and everyone stands on the shoulders of giants. Um, I work with um, uh, Mark Della, um, the um, second countertenor director of the Della Consort from the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties into recent times. And I like to think that we've taken what they do and tried to do it more and other groups will do the same with us. I mean, for goodness sake, you've got room full of teeth. That group is second to nobody. Um, they're so versatile. Um, uh, so you know, no one has all the answers, that's for sure. Um, what, I, what I did find is coming to York in 2012, by the way, top tip, never move house on the same day as conducting your first BBC prom. Oh. Um, moved, <laughs> moved up to York uh, in 2012. And um, I think I was ready for university life in a way, although I don't have, I mean, you said at the beginning, you know, in, in place of a conventional universe, uh, academic career, but I never had any conception of, a, of, of um, an academic career. I'm very clearly not um, any sort of academic. I, I wouldn't want to write an essay. Um, I certainly don't write papers. Mine is, I suppose, just, uh, you know, I have experience. But what actually being at university uh, has done for me, I would say given me time. It doesn't feel like it's given me time. But in working with my choir here, the 24, twice a week, and then also working with an undergraduate module on ensemble singing and also with this uh, master's course, is, is to work regularly with very good quality young musicians who are extraordinarily open-minded. Um, and that's enabled me to work things through in my mind. And for example, to sort out tuning, the whole business that we as singers, especially if there are any barbershop singers uh, listening, um, you know about tuning more than we uh, early musicians do. I always think you really have tuning, the whole combination tones, things, understanding where your major thirds and minor thirds have to be, you know, a sixth of a semitone out from, from what we are used to in the piano. Um, I, I, I can see tuning now like... Um, Neo sees the, the images in the first Matrix film. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure plenty of your, your listeners are the same. You know, when we see a score, we know exactly where our flats and sharps have to be and what is the pivot note. Um, and that's, that's rather glorious. And, and previously, for much of my Fagellini career, I just had a good ear, but I didn't really know what to do. I remember producing a disc for the Orlando consult once. And, uh, and said, uh, Charles, this is Charles Daniels, one of the great tuning brains of the 20th century as a singer. Charles, I think you're a, you're a bit uh, a bit flat on that, that major third. And he said, oh, am I? Oh, okay, fine. Generous, open-hearted man. And then he sang it again. And I said, Charles is still a little bit. And he said, no, I think it was okay this time because I didn't even know back then about pure thirds. How, how, how could you know if you hadn't been exposed to them? Um, or that way of thinking. We certainly didn't learn about that at university. We learned other things. So what this, so what this program does, I suppose, is it's it's changed over the years. In fact, we'll take our tenth cohort next year. I've been at York nearly ten years now, and 
tuning is certainly part of it, but actually it's so much more about how you unleash the emotion behind the music. Um, I'm putting people off as I speak, aren't I? Um, uh, we, I mean, early music and concert music isn't necessarily a place people come to do that. It's about understanding the music and what is inherent in the music and what is your choices. So if I take a Monteverdi magical and he takes, he sets um, uh, a little passage for three voices and then he sets it again for five with wider ranges, he probably wants the second one to be louder. Um, and if there's uh, a repetition, then that repetition means something. These kind of basic things. So I love um, deconstructing the music and putting it back together and helping the students understand what things mean in it. Now, you can then say, OK, but I don't want to do it like that. I want to do it with a saxophone quartet hanging upside down from a ceiling in gold lame. You know, knock yourselves out, do whatever you like. But it starts with understanding the music and respecting the processes that the composer has gone through to, to make it. Yeah, we often have a conversation as directors of, of musical ensembles about whether or not to perform music from a certain time period, quote unquote, as it was performed then. There's this whole idea of, you know, oh, it's Baroque music, so we need to perform it as if we were in the Baroque era. Is there really any way to know exactly how it was performed in the Baroque era? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that there are so many different things, aren't there? Now, here we all are talking about Zoom. I can give you a call at a moment's notice and we can I can tell you about the latest brilliant piece I found by uh, Monteverdi or Joanna Marsh or, or whoever. Um, that didn't happen back then. So you can just imagine how much more variety there was. So we've got to stop thinking about the Baroque period as, as one thing. The idea that someone would have sung in London in the same way that they would have sung in Lisbon you know, it would have come out of, 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 of the way they had sung for, for hundreds of years, both in the church, in plain chant and then early polyphony, um, but also their folk traditions, I suppose. You know, could that have been connected? Um, we, we can't prove it. That's that's for certain. Um, and the idea in London, I mean, Bird, OK, Bird was, was organist and master at Lincoln Cathedral, which is now an hour and a half on the train. Um, and then he came down to London. Well, if he'd been singing in that, oh, no, let's take Tompkins, Thomas Tompkins, okay, Welsh parents, uh, sings at Gloucester Cathedral, Worcester, and then comes down to London, keeps coming down to London, going back and forth until he makes his career in London, 1622. In Gloucestershire, they have a certain accent. I can't do it very well, but it's a little bit like that. It's talking like that. I noticed it the other day, you went down to Stroud to do a course, and as soon as you got off the train, they talk like that. Now, if you sing like that as well, and then you go and sing in a choir where they don't talk like that, they don't sing like that, then you're not going to blend your vowels and you're going to have to change what you do. So there would have been such varieties of ways of doing things. Now, there's a fantastic uh, YouTube series called Early Music Sources Online, um, written by Ilan Brotem, um, who's part of the group Profeti della Quinta, male voice, um, Jewish group. And he's done a program on vibrato. Let's say the V word, shall we? Come on, let's say the vibrato word, because it's the one that people talk about. And Eamon and I today on uh, Coral Chihuahua, we were saying we need to do another program on this because it's come, it's become such a starting point. And I think I understand anecdotally, this is a big thing in American choirs that we don't use vibrato. Now, um, and part of this, Let's not comment on whether that's a good thing or not at this stage. Let Part of this comes from the fact that we know they didn't use it in the Renaissance and Baroque period. We know no such thing. There was no word for vibrato, I understand, until the 19th century. They use other sorts of words and we can guess maybe what they, they might mean. But Elam looked through all these sources that might or might not be referring to this. And he came to the shocking discovery that if you want one answer, it's that they probably did use it rather than they didn't. But he would be the first to say that there is no they. How you sing your Monteverdi and how you sing a Talis Motet and how you sing, uh, you know, a Carissimi Oratorio or something in Paris or Germany or Spain, they're totally different things. And what you must trust is your ears. Listen to the music. What is the music telling you? Um, and obviously vibrato can be something that is used to to develop a very, very strong voice to sound over an orchestra in an opera house. OK, so we don't tend to need that in, in early music in the same way. So you wouldn't develop your sound. But I think we take things for granted at our peril.
Speaking of great YouTube series and analyzing scores and sort of thinking about how to interpret a piece of music, you yourself have launched a fabulous YouTube series called Sing the Score, where you give an in-depth and often hilarious analysis of a specific piece. It's incredibly entertaining. For those of you who haven't seen it, we'll link it on our website. And then you give viewers the opportunity to sing along with the score itself. Tell us all about Sing the Score. Where, where did the idea for this, this come from? I suppose it was part of that panic at the beginning of pandemic, which resulted in a lot of people filming themselves in a guitar with, well, with a guitar and a hose pipe. Um, so basically singing, I'm still here, don't forget about me. I haven't worked out how to make money out of it yet, but we're still here. And we all did that, you know, hands up. Um, but I, what I wanted to cater for was the amateur um, market, which is um, quite big in the UK, um, and provide them something that my mum would enjoy and that I would enjoy and that there wasn't when I was interested in this kind of stuff, um, which is a kind of... Um, guide to how the music's put together and how to understand it. And it started off with a sort of six minute episode of me talking to camera about a Monteverdi Madigal briefly, you know, what sort of little things can you, can you, can you pick out here? Um, and then they got slightly more involved and then the sort of production levels um, started to, to get quite exciting. I would get students to do little things. So there's a lovely Sandrin, um, uh, chanson called La Volonté, my, my desire, having slumbered so long. But there's also a beautiful bastance, um, a, a triple time version of that as well, uh, which had had a great effect on me when I was at school. And so we play the recording of that. And I got a whole load of people, including Andrea from Voces 8, uh, even Barney from Voces 8 and um, some of the sopranos from Stile Antico to do a little bit of the dance and some of my students. And that was great fun. Um, and then somewhere along the line, then we, there was a discussion of Monteverdi, uh, a, a fabulous piece of his from book six called Oimel Belviso. Um, and that is a, a profound piece of music that is as connected to Puccini as it is to Talis. Um, and we, I was trying to talk about the fact that, there's, um, that we use the music of Ficta, this idea that there are not all the sharps and flats are in the music and that um, uh, editors and singers have to decide sometimes whether uh, a musician might, a composer might have mixed, missed something out. And in London professional choral circles, at least when I was in London singing, there was this, there was this concept of something called the Fichter police. And you'd say, oh no, here come the Fichter police. <laughs> Meaning that one of the singers who thought they knew the rest, but more than the rest about Renaissance music would go off on one talking about, oh, well, I think it's a beef up there because of me contrafine. <laughs> Me contrafar, what's that? Um, the bleeding Fichter police. And actually, we turned the Fichter police into a real thing, very much based on and with great love for the Matrix films, um, which I first saw in the States uh, and uh, utterly adore. Um, so it's been quite exciting that there's been this uh, re remake recently. Not remake, this, this follow up to it. Uh, and I don't care if no one else enjoyed it. I certainly did. Um, and uh, so I don't know. that It's a little bit. A Family Guy. Okay, Family Guy. I gather Family Guy is heavily watched in the UK, maybe not as much in the US, although it's a US. US. I had a student once do, once do me an essay on the use of um, flashbacks as, as a type of Lazzi in, in Family Guy. And it's that way that Peter in Family uh, can say, it's like the time when I, and then they show this thing happening. And you can sort of do that on Sing the Score. And it's, I don't know whether it's hilarious. It's certainly a little bit off the wall. It certainly keeps you watching. Probably some people have found it extremely irritating. Um, it gives you an idea as to what is in my mind, but it is a way of getting people to watch from the beginning and to keep them, keep them focused. Well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the, the Fichter Police and of all the entertaining bits and the sort of cutaways that you've, that you've done that are very Family Guy-esque, actually. I, I didn't think yeah. of the reference, but it is, that is exactly what it is like. Well, every time, every time there's a... Every time there's a, well done there. That's Stewie, isn't it? Absolutely it is. Just to give our listeners a taste of the humor Robert incorporates into his Sing the Score videos with the Ficta police, here is a short excerpt from an episode about Monteverdi. To get the full effect, you really should head over to his YouTube channel. There's a link in our show notes. But picture imagery from The Matrix combined with James Bond as you listen to this very funny yet informative segment. But there's a slight issue here that may matter in that it's not clear whether it should be or 
and you're sitting there and deciding which one you like. Um, even at this stage, composers didn't always include every single sharp and flat or the printer, you know, one dropped off in the print shop uh, or the singers were just expected to know according to rules of Musica Ficta. Musica Ficta is an early music phenomenon. Phenomena. Phenomena. But fortunately, I have subscribed to a new Musica Ficta hotline, which saves all the arsing around in rehearsals. I'm just going out into the garage to get something. Victor Hotline. Is this line secure? Our calls are bounced through multiple servers across different continents. We have 90 seconds before your call can be traced, so don't waste my time. Okay, I've got a bit of an embarrassing one. Monteverdi Oime Belviso, I should know the answer. We don't judge, we just want your money. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, alto, the word ville, C natural or C sharp. Oh, please, caller. Pronto. Oime Belviso, alto part, ville, natural or sharp. Natural. Explanation required. The natural note emphasizes the baseness of such a man. Vil, because it's lower, before he's made noble. Gallardo by Laura's speech. Only then is he raised to the higher C-sharp. Send the money in the usual way. So Vil is bass and kept low until transformed by Laura into something higher. What a wonderful way to 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 reach out to folks and sort of bring them into to um, to, to this music and um, and to introduce folks that maybe didn't didn't know about it before, much like we're trying to do today. How else do you, with uh, Ifagellini, reach out to new audiences? What what are things that you do? Do you even try, or is there already just sort of this massive audience that you're like, yes, people are? No, there is. There absolutely isn't a massive audience. We have a concert. Uh, two days after we record this uh, this program. And at the moment, we've sold a third of a not a very large venue in London, St. Martin in the Fields. And I think that's partly because people are still scared to come back to concerts. You know, one respects that. Um, uh, uh, no, there are no easy audiences. Uh, we could do a London concert of our mixed repertoire and we would sell that out generally. But, you know, we're doing composers like Hooper, Sererols, uh, Araujo, which aren't well known, but they're fantastic multi-choir pieces. Um, so it's not easy. And um, also, in your question, perhaps there's, you know, uh, more varied audience as well. If we're performing to uh, middle class audiences that already know this audience, you know, that's something that I know we're all thinking about these days. Um, you know, what's the makeup of our audience um, socially, ethnically, um, gender wise, this kind of thing? We're all interested in it. Um, and what I find is that actually my students are doing are, are more engaged with this than I ever was. And I suppose it's difficult in a niche world to be trying to make changes there, but we all need to be. But frankly, making a living at all at it is, is hard. I'm not particularly good, I don't think, unless you care to tell me to, to the, the contrary, at finding new audiences. Um, uh, I think what we're quite good at is giving something, uh, making it accessible to people who would who already like the music but don't really know anything about it. That's what seeing the score is for. I try not to use technical terms unless I can really show them. I would like to think that anyone who came to a Fagellini concert, even if they knew nothing about music, and anecdotally this is true, would have a good evening because it's not exclusive the way we do it. It's very inclusive. Um, and I try not to try an audience's patience, as, I, as I've meant, bef uh, meant before. But um, we tend not to, going back to an earlier question, we tend not to do whole seasons. Uh, we are employed by festivals uh, to do concerts. Uh, we try to sell them various projects. Obviously, we try to repeat a programme over the course of the season. But we can do, you know, six different programmes in one month sometimes, if it has to be. Um, so... I think trying to make it open, trying to make it unthreatening, um, trying not to make it, uh, oh, you know, you can only enjoy this music if you know the rules. You know, music's music. You can enjoy it on any level. Um, when I talk to audiences at concerts, which I always do, I try to give them one or two things about a piece to hold on to. Um, but uh, no, I think I think the next generation is going to be better at this than I am in a way. 
But I do think Fagiolini has a connection with audiences through just the humanity of, of what we do. And I think that's important too. Robert, as we're rounding out our time here a little bit, tell us maybe uh, as we're, we're leaving the pandemic now and, and we're sort of uh, slowly tiptoeing our way uh, back into live performances and things, two questions for you. One, what will you keep from this period of time moving forward? Um, and then second, maybe you can tell us what is next? What will be? What is something that we can look forward to for, uh, from Ifagellini? I think especially for anyone who does niche of any type with artistic business or anything else, realizing that the internet is a way that you can reach everyone who is interested in that thing. You know, all 16 people <laughs> dotted around the world, you can connect them in this way. So I think that's important. Um, I mean, don't expect to make any money at it, but you can you can reach all these people and, and, and join them together. So that's nice. Um, I think film is important for us. I mean, it was before, but I think little things like seeing the score are uh, are something I'd like to take on with me. The choral chihuahua thing with with uh, Eamon and, and Harry, uh, that's, that's pleasurable as well. Um, but I think not just a concert life, but a more holistically organized version of what a group like ours can do uh, and that takes us on to this, your second question about what's next well we have a new cd coming out uh, now uh, draw on sweet night all john will be madrigals um hasn't been recorded since the 1980s those madrigals um so that's one thing but we're also off to, to film another uh, a carnival mask this time from 1595 in which six characters play a board game but we're going to set it in a sort of Inspector Clouseau way in a sort of 1920s um, uh, dinner party somewhere. But, you know, these things cost so much money to make and no one wants to pay for them. Even when we put the stag hunt up there and asked for sort of three pounds uh, to watch it, I think we, we about 600 people watched it. Um, and I think we'll probably put it up free fairly shortly because now we've done our job on that and need to do the next one. But for me, the... Uh, funding things privately has become more and more important. So, hey, if there's anyone out there who's interested in filming Renaissance Unusual Things and wants to help, I'd be glad to hear from them. Um, but I think as I get older, I'm 55, um, I had to think about how many years as a countertenor I can still sing um, and uh, what I really want to do. Um, I love being here at the University of York and working with students. That is invigorating beyond, beyond belief. Um, I want to do... I'd like to do more Bach, I think, but there are other people that will do it better, so that's fine. But I love the process in Bach and trying to find expression through process. I think that's that's interesting. Um, but I'm not wildly goal driven. Um, yeah, I'm not. I don't. I don't regard myself as a, a success or a failure, depending on what I've managed to get out. Um, I like to provide music for musicians. I like to maintain good relationships with musicians. Um, I like to share things with an audience. But I think that's probably more important that I carry on doing that. We do have a 40th anniversary tour in three and a half years. Um, we don't know what we're going to do yet, but we do have a title for it. It's a Monty Python quote you might recognize is, we're not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. When is the new Ifagellini CD going to be released? Um, April the 1st. Do you have April Fool's Day uh, over the pond? We most certainly do. Yeah, well, there you go. Don't don't buy it before 12 o'clock because you'll never look at it that way. But goodness me, there is beauty on that disc. There is, if you thought magicals were just sort of, hey, hey, noni, no, falala, think again. There's intensity, there's passion, uh, there's plangency to be found in Wilby. I love the the Sing the Score series and the way, you know, we've kind of touched on it a little bit during this conversation, but the way that it gives your audience, whoever that may be, whoever's watching a Sing the Score video, it gives that person the opportunity to learn just enough and to get a little insight into the music itself to be able to appreciate it more. I've always felt that in order to appreciate something, you have to understand it to a certain degree. And I think mm. that what you do so brilliantly with Sing the Score is that you you get us to understand, as, as an audience member, you get me to understand enough that I can appreciate, but I don't feel like I'm still not smart enough or there's just way too much to know. You just have this very, very um, down to earth way of presenting the information, which I, I really appreciate. And I think it's so important when it comes to expanding the reach of choral music, regardless of the genre of music 
of music that we're performing, but just to get people to to not feel so threatened and scared by yeah. the, what they don't understand. Yeah. And that's the thing. If you think about great ed- educators, you know, Nadia Boulanger, I've been thinking about recently, uh, or Carl Sagan, you know, people like that. Um, they just they just fill you with wonder. And that's what you really want. That's what um, I've tried to emulate, trying to get people just to understand enough so that they can enjoy it a little bit more than they would have otherwise. So it's not threatening. There are 32 episodes, mostly on early music, but also on uh, on Vaughan Williams or South African Istratamia music. Um, we have a, a connection with a choir from South Africa over, over 20 years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just go and dive into them and pick one at random. Yeah, they're fantastic. And we'll, of course, include a link to uh, to that YouTube channel within our show notes so people can can check that out. Um, is Zifa Jolini going to go on tour anytime soon? Are we going to be able to see you in the U.S. or anything? We are trying to sell uh, a tour to the U.S. If anyone's interested in our program, Rewilding the Wasteland, which is this uh, wonderful gray to bright green program of uh, Renaissance contemporary and 20th century music, um, and we're also setting an early music program with that tour as well. I think our manager's selling it for 2023, uh, or is it 2024? Not sure. Anyway, an email through the Fagellini website if, if anyone's interested, um, because it's been too long since we were in the States. I forget, 2014, something like that. Hmm. Um, it'd be nice to come again. It would be great to have you. Absolutely. Speaking of finding you online, where, where can we find you online just to make sure that we don't miss out on the new album and potential tours? Yeah, if you can spell I Fagiolini, I mean, it's a Fagiolini's restaurant on Lexington in New York. So um, that's we used we used to get orders for pizza. Um, so I, I did send them a hello once. They they didn't reply. Um, uh, com, or you can look me up, Robert Hollingworth. And once you've gone through all the uh, the famous Robert Hollingworths who are photographers and uh, academics and things, you will eventually come to someone who does madrigals and things. And uh, uh, yeah, do look up Draw on Sweet Night. Hey, if there's anyone out there that still buys CDs, we'd love to. We'd love you to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know where uh, the the closest CD player is for me in my car. That's the closest CD player okay. for me. <laughs> but yeah, that's wonderful. Um, great, Giacomo. Did we miss anything? I don't think so. This has been really fun, Robert, and, and incredibly informative. And in your true style, you have. Uh, uh, just made all of this music so accessible and, and so wonderful. And we hope folks Great. enjoy it well, as much as we do. You inspire me to maybe try and start it again. It's been a few months since an episode and uh, it's just needing the time. Wonderful. Yeah, of course. Well, this has been a really exceptional conversation. We love uh, everything Ifagellini does and it's been great to chat with you, Robert. So thanks again wow. for joining us and for filling us in. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Ciao. Let's finish off today's episode with something dreamy, Le Jardin Clos, which is movement five of Le Cantique des Cantiques by Jean-Yves Daniel Lessieux. A contemporary of Olivier Messiaen, Daniel Lessieux's setting of the Song of Songs text is a fine example of 20th century French avant-garde chamber music choral writing, characterized by an almost dreamlike chord progression reminiscent of French Impressionism.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Ficta Police, contracted and directed by Chorus Dolores, who knows there's a right answer to every question. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.